This podcast is proudly brought to you by Nuova Simonelli. Hello everyone and welcome to Tampa Tantrum episode the 63. Uh, my name is Steve Layton and I'm joined by my esteemed colleague Colin Harmon. Oh no, it's not Colin. Now I'm on my own this week. Um, Colin is uh, busy probably having a holiday or something. He does a lot of those. But I do have a guest. I do have somebody joining me, so it's not another terrible monologue where I just go, Oh, I love Bolivia. Um, I'm joined by my friend, colleague, buddy, uh, I don't know what else to call him, uh, Mr. Dale Harris. Hello, Dale. Sorry, I just wanted to see if I held on for a little bit, but I would scare you. Hello. <laughs> a pregnant pause. <laughs> do lots of those. Uh, I was just going to say, pregnancy is one of your specialties, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, um, Dale, for those who don't know you, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and your role in the coffee world. My role in the coffee world? <laughs> yes. No, you have, you have many roles in the coffee world. I think you have many hats and it's, uh, and there's many interesting things for you to share with us all. I'm a big player. I'm making a change. Uh, I'm Dale. I uh, I work for Has Been Coffee, a company that Steve knows very well. Uh, I am uh, the director of wholesale for the business. Uh, so I spend a long time kind of look, looking after cafes, but uh, looking at training and the other things that they need. Uh, I'm also uh, on the board of SCAE, uh, one of the beautiful associations for coffee. And you're the reason I wasn't allowed to stand. Yes, I'm, I'm, I, I am the representative of has been on that board and they didn't want both of us. Mm, so they chose the better one, I think. <laughs> they chose the one who's more comfortable <laughs> in negotiations. Who's <laughs> <laughs> more willing to bridge the gaps, uh, which, is, which is part of why I do wholesale and not the other things. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, Okay, tell us a little bit about you, kind of how you got into coffee as well. I think that, that's always interesting for people to get a, a background of like where you started. Uh, I'm told... Do you want the true story? Do you want the, yeah. It's not a good story. I hope it's a true story because I think it's the one you told me. Otherwise, you've <laughs> got employment under false pretenses. There used to be a, a cafe above a bookstore uh, in the village where I grew up. And uh, when I was a student, I would... You know, I, I wanted to cultivate this idea that like I was cool and I was I was intellectual, so I used to go up to the cafe and order like mockers with cinnamon, cream on the top. How's that been going for you? Well, the intellectual the thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're gonna have to apologise to the listeners because me me and Dale have known each other a very long time, um, and we've spent a lot of Some time. Some might say too company. long. <laughs> Some would say too long, and, and, and we have this very kind of casual relationship where we will rip pieces out of each other all of the time. All of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So a bookshop, uh, you were drinking mockers and do you, do you know what that that whole kind of like terrible drink thing? I don't think you can be a coffee professional if you haven't done the terrible drink thing at the start. Yeah. Like anybody who says I came into drinking amazing Kenyans as filter coffee through v60s it just lies yeah. like because you don't get into it like that yeah you need it you need an entry point and like the massive dessert drink with all the the very obvious flavors is an easy like like it's that's what it's there for it gets you hooked yeah. uh and i remember quite a like a solid progression so i remember that like this was uh it was like a small local chain called Madison's that were mostly in bookstores and things like that within the Southwest. Uh, but it was pretty much the Starbucks, the Starbucks menu kind of reduced a little bit. And that was the, you know, without a doubt, the best thing on offer in like a small rural community. Um, mm -hmm. I went from that and I remember loving that and I remember progressing through drinks. So there was like hot chocolate and then mockers and then, lattes with flavors and then cappuccinos without kind of thing uh i then i remember before i worked in coffee uh when i used to do something else um i remember kind of falling for starbucks or, or falling falling into love with the idea of starbucks and their drinks when the first one opened near me and then from starbucks i 
I started drinking more coffee and reading more about coffee. And I was, I was very much in love with the idea of the cafe rather than the drink. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to open a cafe. I wanted to, to leave the, like the job I was doing before, which was working in, working in retail, but with, with clothes. Um, so I wanted to leave that and move into coffee and lots of things came together. So that was the direction. And so I started working for Costa, who are a UK chain. Um, and I started working for them as a very kind of like, I need to, I need to see whether if I make coffee, it's something I enjoy and whether I can run a cafe, uh, based on my retail experience. And it was a good experience. I, I progressed through Costa pretty quickly. So I went from, you know, wiping tables and working bar in a busy store to, to managing a few stores within, you know, a year, 18 months. But, but I quickly realized I was learning things, but I wasn't learning anything about coffee. Uh, do you think, do you think to be like, do you think to be a good barista, it's important to have that kind of background of a, a chain operation. I'm always kind of sad that I never did. I never worked for somebody else in yeah. coffee. I've always just worked for myself. And I know that Collins talked about when he used to work at the crepe. He used to work at a crepery place in, in Dublin. And like how they wouldn't let him touch the espresso machine for ages. Um, and now he just has a self-imposed ban. But uh, like he... <laughs> Can we he talk about his self-imposed bans for a second? Does he still, does he still he, refuse to move espresso machines? He just still refused to remove the machines. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> smart. It's really really smart. I think every time you say to me, "Can you give me a lift with this machine?" <laughs> I'm thinking he's smart. Um, but now you, you say you think it's useful to get that kind of background because we slag the chains off so much in specialty. Uh, but like you, know, we need to have an understanding of what the consumer really wants. Like I think, I think anyone who writes off what chains do. Is an idiot. Like they, they have a lot of people working on how to make the most out of their customers, how to get the best kind of, how to use customer feedback and build something that matches their needs. And you know, mm. bar layout is designed to increase sales. Products are on menus for a reason. The service is good. You know, if you go to a chain, like as chains grow they lose quality or it, it is difficult to scale anything. But if you go to any of the, you know, not just coffee chains, but, you know, pub chains or, or retail store chains, you go to any of those big multi-site operations and you go to that kind of best in class store, the service will be exceptional because there are people controlling it and putting effort into it. Like a long time ago, I worked for a company that serviced McDonald's coffee machines and mm-hmm. I went to their, during my training week, I went to the busiest McDonald's in London and it's a franchise, so it's not run by McDonald's, but it is their, it is their kind of model McDonald's that people go and they see this is how a McDonald's should work. And the service was exceptional. The staff were paid well. The staff were excited about what they were doing. Um, There's lots to learn there. There just isn't so much to learn about product quality. Like you, like you learn some of the, the basic requirements of how, of how you serve people quickly and what things, what things are kind of non-negotiable and how you manage quality, like shot time matters and you use equipment that makes, makes it easy for workflow and stuff like that. But you won't learn how to make a better coffee because the standard of coffee making has been determined at like that brand standard that is achievable by a, by a huge workforce. And, yeah. and that's the biggest difference between working in a specialty business or working in a, in a chain business. And like, I don't want to say that a chain is commodity because, you know, Starbucks is not commodity coffee, but the biggest difference is the products have been standardized in those big businesses and especially cafes, they are individual and quality led. Do you think that, uh, so we went to the Starbucks Reserve place uh, in Seattle last year. Um, do you think that Starbucks attempts to try and raise what they are doing to take that to a different place? Or do you think it really is just a, this is something for us to show off and a big toy? So and look at what like we That's can. a really interesting question because that, like, that store is intentional. 
it it does some very specific things and it does them beautifully, but it doesn't really raise the quality of coffee within Starbucks. But they have some other stores. They have uh, I forgot what they're called. Uh, but we went to a couple of them. We went to one when we went to Seattle. Uh, is it Fifty First? Yeah, like, like like the, like and there are a couple yeah. of them, and I think there are more in the states now than there were. But I think those are yeah. becoming or being transitioned into reserve stores. They certainly are. Like these concept stores, that when they picked out what was working in the concept stores from specialty. So, like for anyone who doesn't know, the idea was that they would have a store. Um, that was not branded as Starbucks, that looked very like individual with handcrafted seats and tables, Lemazoka machines, Clover machines, all the, the, you know, the finest equipment that was available with staff that were really, really passionate about coffee. I think you'll find they had Simonelli machines. <laughs> I, I can't remember how they started, but like... Our kind, our kind sponsor, Simonelli, I saw when well, we so, went to So when we went to them, they, they were actually the launch location for the Black Eagle. Uh, That's right. so, I th- so I think they had something else before, uh, but I think they, the reason they were buying into the Black Eagle was because they were, they were looking to represent themselves as specialty at the highest level. And they were delivering Starbucks coffee, the exact same roast that was available in other stores, but brewing it the way, you know, with the parameters of the specialty cafe would, you know, dialing in the way regular baristas were. And, and actually, so, uh, I can't remember whether it was their manager or their head barista, but I spent some time with a guy called Matt, who was who was running the, the Seattle store. Uh, yeah. And what amazed me the most was because we were talking about coffee and talking about their training and excuse me how they were developing their staff. Uh, and he spoke like a barista from from the independent scene. And it's like, oh, you know, where have you worked before? It's like I've only ever worked for Starbucks. I've been making coffee for Starbucks for like fifteen years. And, you know, we talk a lot about looking after employees and, you know, it's a, it's especially coffee community. We talk about how you get staff attention and grow the role of the barista. That's a guy who's never been in a, like, like who has been a barista for 15 years and is loving it and is changing the way a huge company works, you know, is being given that freedom. Um, mm. I think there's a book called drive which talks about looking after employees and it says like uh mastery is a thing and autonomy uh major drivers on how to keep staff happy and this is a guy who had those things like he had the ability to control the way the coffee tasted in a business where everyone says that's impossible he was driving small changes but he was also the best at what he did in that business and they were trusting him like that was a really cool experience um is that, a, is that the book that I keep finding everywhere around the roastery? Every time I turn around, there's a copy of it there, like everywhere. <laughs> like, why did you buy 400 of them to place all around? <laughs> just in case, just in case you're in the bathroom. And like, <laughs> you, you have a talk on, uh, so, on employees at some point, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. We're not going to do it in uh, New York now because it didn't feel the right place, but I think we might be doing something in Manchester. And the, and the goal of that is to avoid litigation. <laughs> Yes, yes. How to yeah. get out of? Yeah. How to not get your ass sued? Um, so you were at Costa. You were managing a few stores there. Where did you? Where did you go from at that point? So uh, there was an ad for a local. I forgot what the title was. Uh, a coffee trainer was the mm-hmm. was the job or, or coffee quality auditor or something, but it was. It was with a company called that was then called First Choice. Uh, there was a UK-based uh, equipment and coffee supplier, supplying coffee mostly to food service, uh, but equipment to lots of different large businesses. Um, so anything from McDonald's to Weatherspoons, which is a pub chain here. Um, they, they're like. They had been in business for like 15 years, I think. And they started off supplying hotels, then found a gap in food service and then really found like equipment was a way to make long-term money, looking after people's equipment needs and stuff like that. So it's mostly been to cup equipment and traditional was a, what, you know, super automatic machines or traditional machines was like a very small part of their business. Uh, when I joined, I was mostly servicing bean to cup machines at the beginning and kind of trying to push 
the, the basic quality standard in, in these big chain businesses, trying to help people mm-hmm. clean out their milk uh, systems and make sure that the extraction time was good. And through that and through the fact that I was really interested in learning more about coffee, they gave me the opportunity to kind of move more into the traditional side of their business, which was very small at the mm-hmm. point, but was very kind of high-end machines. So at the time, it was Keys van der Vesten machines. Uh, but yeah, but then it became uh, Victoria Arduino long before uh, the Black Eagle. But when that business was, when the new machine was the Adonis. Um, and so we were putting that in like the glamorous head office and marketing companies and trying to teach their baristas to to run kind of a specialty cafe. Um, and I, I progressed pretty well with that. And I had a really good time and met lots of super interesting people um, who are all over the, the coffee business now. You know, you find them, people who have done done a time with, with First Choice or United Coffee, which is what it became. So now it's part of UCC, uh, you know, a, a global company. And they are kind of the, one of the, the main European hubs of that. They have offices in Ireland. They supply hundreds of machines. They have hundreds of staff on the road. And they do some really good things with coffee and they do some really, you know, high volume coffee, coffee things. And that's cool. Um, I, I remember coming to visit you at your, your house kind of fairly early on and walking into your kitchen with a huge Adonis sat in your kitchen. Yeah. I love that machine. <laughs> it, was like, it was gorgeous and impractical. It was not. It was not gorgeous, and it was too big for that for that space. It was just like it was huge. It didn't even fit under the cupboards. I remember it kind of sticking off the end, edge of your kitchen sideboard, thinking, "Why has he got that in here? Does he need espresso that bad?" I at made home? at least seven hundred like, shots on that machine. Uh, <laughs> it's the, that that's effectively the. It was the the older version of the already inside. Uh, but the digital version, yeah. so you had excellent uh, temperature control. Uh, you could there were lots of things you could adjust in terms of steam pressure and stuff. But it was also like a glamorous outside, so it's pretty much what the uh, it it fitted the the area of the market that I think the the White Eagle does now or the Black Eagle volumetric. But it wasn't quite as technologically yeah. advanced as they are. I didn't have the T three technology because that came later. Um, it's. It was really interesting it had having unusual a, sorry? styling. It had unusual styling. Well, so this is the thing with Italian machines; like, they have style, and style is either you love it or you hate it. You know, you. Yeah. Everyone noticed it. <laughs> it was yeah, yeah, big yeah you definitely noticed. Like, like if there's one problem with the Black Eagle, it's that they made it with, you know, great big slabs of metal. I like plastic. <laughs> I, I'm a fan of the paper <laughs> exterior of a coffee machine. Like, like we can, that's pretty moving yeah, too. Many and we could just like rip them open and fix it, and then like sellotape them up. That would be great. It's <laughs> like you look at the insides of us, the machine, and other than the water filling the boilers, there's really nothing heavy in there. And then they put like these huge yeah. metal cages on them, and you know, obviously we we play with slayers, and uh, slayers are just so weighty. Made with lead. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, we work in a place where the easiest place to fix the machines is up the stairs and down the stairs. Uh, very, very, very thin stairs too, not particularly wide and with a turning at the top as well, which makes it even easier to move them. Um, so during your time at United, you were kind of doing stuff like, you know, kind of the, the playing with the nice end of the coffee part of their business that they were doing. Um, and you started to get interested in competition. Uh, kind of what what pushed you to want to get involved in barista competition at that time? So that's, that's interesting because competition hit me before I had worked in coffee or, or anything else. So I, I started, I decided that I wanted to work in coffee knowing nothing about it. That, you know, cafes are like these, these vibrant places where different people meet and, and wonderful things happen. Um, so I started kind of researching, well, how do you open a cafe and looking at coffee suppliers and getting kind of trade magazines and reading through things. So I saw an ad uh, and the, like my first, like my first solid awareness of the Bristol competition was when uh, La Spaziale uh, published like a congratulations, thank you to James Hoffman when he became a finalist in Bern. 
uh, and it was like yeah. a like a full page ad in one of these terrible kind of trade magazines. But it was it was kind of cute, and it's like, oh, well, what's this thing? And kind of researched about the competition, and you know, by the time Tokyo came around, uh, I knew a little bit more about it, and I was able to watch some of the the feed on the internet or the videos that were being released. I don't think it was like a live feed then. I think it was just like individual videos got broadcast. Uh, yeah, no, that was that was something that uh, Zachary and Katie Carjulo, um kind of asked around coffee people and just said, like, we want to go to Tokyo and we'll film this and put it up if you give yeah. us some money. Um, yeah, and that was the kind of the, the pre-streaming age. I mean, now we, we demand competitions to be streamed where we could, we snipe about it if it's not crystal clear perfect. But, like, that... It's not that long ago. It's like nine years ago. You couldn't, yeah, like, like it wasn't, there wasn't any but streaming. I tell you what, my memories... So, I love barista competition i love wbc i love the fact that it is professional and available and it and can you just say can i just stop you there you you, you can't just say i love barista competition you do have to go <laughs> barista competition <laughs> who is it, it was chris that? backer it was chris backer of cat yeah. and cloud we, yeah like we did that forever in the roastry didn't we mm-hmm. like, <laughs> I think it's still a thing every now and again. I love competition. There are lots of other things that happen at the roastery that we don't talk about. <laughs> we you don't need to talk that, about that's that. That's one of the things we can share with people. That they can have a little bit of a, uh, a Pandora, yeah. sneaky to Pandora's trade box. Secrets. <laughs> um, the, yeah, like, so, like, I've been to, I've been to WBC, like, I've, I've been to the side where the WBC is happening most years recently. Mm-hmm. And it's always a good experience. I love watching the performances. It's great to be able to taste some of the coffee, like at some of the some of the bars and meet other people. But I don't have as wonderful a WBC experience as I did when I used to kind of watch it at whatever time it was due to time zones at like four AM, sat there in front of my laptop watching the video where you like you see so much more from the stream. Um I think mm-hmm. the best WBC I ever like the the best performance I ever had was separate, but the 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 experience of watching WBC that I enjoyed the most was Melbourne, because I was getting up in the middle of the night, I was watching, and you know, and there were a fair few people that I knew competing, so there's that emotional attachment as well. But you also got to see so much more, and it becomes an event. Whereas when you're actually at the trade shows, yeah. there's so much other stuff going on, there's so many other commitments, and then you go and sit in the like sit in the stands to kind of watch what's going on and you can't really see everything. Um, There are lots of draws in your attention and it doesn't become as much of a, much of an event. I think you're going to enjoy one of the talks in New York that we're going to talk about a little bit later, but... uh, I hope I'm going to enjoy more than one. (laughs) No, I think you're really going to enjoy one though because it is focusing on that thing about competition and kind of you know, what's happened and changed because I think and there's a lot of feeling. I think actually a lot of people kind of go in, I don't think it's as good, much fun as it was. I don't think it's as, you know, as engaging as it once was. Um, and uh, yeah, for me, it's like that Bogota experience yeah. was just phenomenal. That audience brought, that Latin audience brought something completely different um, to the competition for me. And the atmosphere in that place was electric all the time. Like it was crazy. Like even in the, the the first round heats, it was packed. Yeah, in Dublin, it was empty. Like it, it only filled up. I mean, it didn't fill up for semi final results because everybody knew. In fact, in the dead dead, there was a splattering of people. I heard for the final results, it was full, and finals day, of course, it was full because it's finals day. But um, yeah, the competition is definitely kind of changing. But so your time back in two thousand and seven, two thousand eight was uh, this looks cool. So what was the step from it looking cool to thinking I quite like to do What's that? that? Like, I think the other thing to say is I met uh, and uh, we both know Ed Buston from Clifton Coffee, and he was he was yeah. one of the coffee suppliers. Or Clifton was one of the coffee suppliers that I approached, and that's a business that's that's changed hugely from that day. Uh, as most mm-hmm. of those kind of, I don't want to say small, like let's say regional powerhouses. So they were like they they were the coffee supplier to everyone in the area where I was growing up. Like anybody who was doing anything that wasn't Lavazza was using coffee from Clifton. And I think uh, this may be wrong, but I think at that point Clifton was also selling Lavazza. So they kind of owned that market. He had loads of 
uh, James, who, who owns the business or runs the business, you know, went, he knew all the restaurateurs and the people setting up hotels and he was the business card that everyone would give you. So I went to meet them and taste their coffee and Ed gave me like a, like a latte with a rosetta on. So it's like these two things. Wow. Like you can pull patterns and there's like recognition and, uh, there's a way of progressing and learning skills. So the idea of competition was, was a seed in my head. It's something I wanted to pursue. Um, so when I joined first choice, it was like, would you help me do this? And they were kind of, they, they were really supportive. They were a bit bemused and they didn't really, I think at the beginning, they weren't really, uh, they didn't see it as value added in terms of the competition, but they saw a way of kind of supporting an employee and, and helping them do something they wanted to do that, that would be positive. Um, so they helped me compete the first year and I took like the blend that we were using and I explained it and I made a, what was my best signature drink ever? Um, I would love. To, did I tell you about the eggs? Do you remember? No. Um, I, like honestly, if if I ever made it to WBC, and I had the guts, I would I would do something very similar again, which was the, yes. <laughs> it's so stupid. But it makes me happy as they were like, uh, I took some eggs and I blew out the kind of the yolk and the white, so they were just hollow eggshells. And then I filled yeah. them, I, I, inj- I sterilized them and I injected them with like a uh, creme anglais. And like, okay. the, like in terms of signature drink, it was not clever in any way. It was vanilla cream and then coffee. And the coffee was terrible. Yeah. Um, <sighs> I was making it as well as I could, but like the judges were like looking at me afterwards when I had my debrief and they're like, you can make espresso this blend's interesting. I was like, okay. <laughs> and there was very much like this thing that they couldn't coach uh, and they couldn't tell me that the coffee wasn't good enough because that isn't their job. But mm-hmm. they were kind of suspicious of it. Uh, so we fixed that by the time we got to the, the finals, the semifinals that year uh, or whatever. I've forgotten the, the system. But... Uh, so the sea drink was a very basic coffee flavor with very basic vanilla, very basic cream. It's very tasty. Uh, like it yeah. was kind of classic flavors that went together. Uh, but it was, it was creme anglais piped into these eggs. So effectively my, my prep table had eggs in egg cups on the side and I had a little pan and I was like talking to them about like classic flavors and chocolate, and, uh, affogato. And then I cracked eggs on a pan and custard came out. I was like, yeah, done. But like, like the, <laughs> the magic of being able to crack an egg and the, the, the stuff coming out and not being what they expected. Oh yeah, it was such a, such a crazy trickster. <laughs> oh, you, you deceitful yeah. person, you. So, um, competition. Let's kind of give people a quick resume of your... My failures. Past, uh, <laughs> your past bridesmaid attempts, uh, your past glory. So you've competed in UKBC since 2009, is it? Yes, that's when Colin was in Atlanta, yeah. right? So yeah, that, yes. was, that was when Gwillem, who I'd met a few times before, and he was like, he was this weird kind of Northerner Welsh man in a flat cap who would wander around trade shows asking questions and looking kind of quizzical everywhere. Uh, I chatted to him <laughs> on some online forums, and uh, he, was, he was very against barista competition. He was like, this is something that, that other people do, but I make coffee. And then about halfway through, <laughs> like, the heats, Willem was competing. He said, oh, yeah, I just decided to do this thing. And then he kind of won. And, you know, he was one of those guys. So the first time I met Willem, and I bet he would hate any barista who ever did this uh, these days. But the first time I met Willem, he was kind of working behind the lever machine with me. And he was kind of, like, spinning porta filters, like, almost juggling them in his hands. It was it was very kind of flair and skill and uh, <laughs> I, we should bring this up to him next yeah. time we see him. I, like Willem is a hero, and he was the, he was very much uh, before competition, but but after I'd spent some time in a couple of shows with him, he was somebody that I wanted to learn things from, and he still and he still is, yeah. but but very much at that stage where I let's. I don't mean this in a modest way that I knew nothing. I genuinely did not know a thing. Uh, <laughs> and he knew things and he was very happy to share them. 
uh, he would let people work bar with him uh, on his pitches, on his mar- like his uh, his stalls at markets, and uh, he w- he was a great face for anybody who wants to like engage with making coffee as a career. He was a, he was a, yeah, and 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 he he remains and yeah. still is. Yeah, yeah, still is one of those one of those people that just gives his time so freely. I was talking to him this week. Uh, that he's working with a uh, barista from Poland yeah. and like he was asking me about coffee that you know we might be able to help him with and stuff and he's just constantly that guy that will help people and um, yeah he, and, and super super nice guy so 2009 where did you finish then? so I finished before like ahead of John Gordon that's yeah. all that matters that was in Glasgow was in Glasgow, wasn't Glasgow. it? So I, I placed also, the last time you finished in front of John Gordon as well, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, I placed 12th and he placed 14th, I think, and we both made lots of terrible errors, and we kind of knew what we were doing. I actually, I actually think he finished 17th. Oh, really? Don't ask me how I know that. Don't ask me how I know that, but I'm <laughs> fairly sure he finished 17th with an Indian coffee called Balmadi. Yeah. yeah. dynamic Farm, that yeah. one. Yeah. It is. It yeah. is. It's. It, I'm sure he was 17th because I just couldn't get over so it. So I, rem- I remember I him like, like whilst we were both moping around each other. I remember him bringing the coffee that he'd been brewing around to like the stand where I was doing work. And this, I mean, I met John and uh, through barista competition. I met Jess. I met Estelle. Uh, Lance. Yes. They got, uh, even you know James Hoffman. James Hoffman was one of my judges. The first you know regional that I competed in. Um, He's always judging he's always, people. Yeah, whether, it, whether he's going to apron on or not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, like, so John brought his coffee right to me. He said, oh, yeah, it's like, it, I'm brewing it. It's really weird. At like 48 seconds, 49 seconds. It was the first time that I'd had delicious coffee that was really outside of, you know, what, what, what certainly at that point we saw as acceptable parameters. Like 24... I mean, I mean, it's funny, like back then, 24 seconds or nothing yeah. else. It was kind of, and I was exactly the same. It was, I, I remember Gwillem pulling shots at, in Atlanta um, and, and went 40 seconds on his shots and like, yeah. what, and I was just completely freaked out. I was like, what's just happened to my world? I had 24 seconds. I knew this. That was one piece I could hang <laughs> on to. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it was ruined. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was a time where that was still, Something we talked yeah. about. Yeah. Um, so you finished uh, then, and then you competed again in 2010? Yeah, so, like, so in 2010, still working for First Choice, I, I understood better how to do it. Like the experience of competing is the best way to learn how to compete. Uh, you make terrible mistakes. You certainly don't prepare properly. I learned things the next year. I... I took a very different style of coffee that uh, a guy called, uh, oh, I can't remember his surname, Damien. What's his surname? Damien Blackburn, who now uh, writes for a company called Dark Woods, uh, based in Huddersfield. But he he presented some coffees to me, so it was a single origin, which was pretty much new to me to use single origin then. Uh, It was a Marigajit, I think. Uh, I think it had placed in a couple of excellence. Uh, but it was like incredibly obvious flavors of apple and made a sick drink around it. I came second that year uh, in the UK, which was a really successful job. But John Gordon beat me, and I don't want to say <laughs> I don't want to say that I hold it he against him. He beat you literally. That's that's terrible. I've heard he hits kittens, yeah. but I didn't realize he beat he people beat as well. People. Uh, so John <laughs> went on to uh, compete in London that year, where I volunteered and. Around that time is kind of when I met you, and I met you through John. Um, that's that's part of the reason he's really important. Is he was he was working with Husband Coffee, and he introduced me to you just as somebody as you know who share, who shares a passion uh, for the coffee thing. I think was that the year. I think that was it was the that London was the London heat, heat but before that, yeah, like the at the Tampa Tantrum recording that you did there. So yeah, there is video evidence video. of it. And you know, along that time, I I previously met Colin in a couple of places. So I met Colin and Stephen Morrissey when I visited Simonelli's factory for some training. And actually, Gwilym was there then as well. Uh, newly won, newly crowned, um, the yeah. world champion. 
Uh, and I met Colin at a few of the UK events because he was coming over. So we met at when Square Miles Grocery were first setting up. They ran some really cool events, uh, takes to the West Coast and stuff like that. So I met him. I met uh, Dave Walsh, I think, and Ferg, and lots of cool people. Uh, it was it was one of the most exciting times in coffee, certainly for me. And some of that was my not naivety, but my like my eyes were being open to lots of things. Uh, I think it was it was very much a time in the UK where coffee was becoming like the thing that the UK was known for, and there were a lot of personalities around that. And it was a it was a fun place to be. Um, and I think we were learning so much then as well. Like I really feel it was that that golden age of learning of, of of just everything. Like everything came all at once. You know, brewing and brewed coffee became a big thing. Espresso, we were pushing the boundaries with you know with uh, parameters. Do you remember um, when Penny University we were best quality coffee? <laughs> oh, I remember it. It was it was it's like the day Concord was yeah. retired. Um, no, it, but it was it was just it was a big thing that we were suddenly having flavors and coffees that tasted of stuff, and it was a real yeah, it was a real golden age. Um, so then, in two thousand and ten, you came to work. I came to work for you. I came to work in a like a a regional but well respected roastery. You were working as a waitress in a cocktail I was, bar. I was. Not, not a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you, you saved me. You gave, you gave me opportunity and I have grown alongside the business. Um, and, and really, like, the, the biggest reasons, like, the reasons that I changed was access to better coffee. To, like, to, it certainly wasn't, it for, wasn't the for the money. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Uh, I, like, I, I, I got to work with you and work more directly with coffee to... That, that we could take control of the quality over, but also work at what was not the very beginning of a business, but a, but a business that, that was definitely in a stage where it was beginning to grow. And that's okay. so what, what, so, so tell the lovely people listening what your role is and kind of what you do. And it's pretty much what you do today, just in a, with a, a few more people in your team yeah. and things. Progression has not happened um, for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think the accountant will say differently, but um, <laughs> um, no. So to tell the people kind of what you what your role is and what you actually like your day to day stuff. I mean, we we are a, we are a, a small supplier of coffee to businesses, mm-hmm. uh, but we're a very you know we're a good size, if not large, specialty coffee roaster. Um, and my role is to manage the wholesale side of that business. So we have a really strong retail side of the business that Steve leads and, and Chris kind of enacts and looks after customer service and make sure that things arrive on time. We have an amazing team of people who roast the coffee, who source the coffee, who pack the coffee. Uh, so I don't need to yeah. do any of the things that, that, are, that are typical roastery work. Uh, my job yeah. is mostly the Apart from Christmas time. Apart from Christmas time when I have to bag up coffee. And I am, I am not qualified. I am, I am incompetent no, and slow. It's not your strongest And I don't get paid by the hour, so it doesn't work for me. <laughs> but on like the 22nd, 23rd, I bag the coffee because everyone's so busy with the retail stuff. Um, yeah, I, I do everything from finished product in a bag uh, to getting into the hands of cafe owners or, you know, restaurateurs or, or people, people running any kind of service business who want to serve coffee. And my job is to kind of bridge the gap between the information and the wealth of kind of knowledge and resource that we have at the roastery and giving them what they need to run an effective business for their customers, uh, to develop their baristas, to help them understand what's available, to get the right equipment, to, to maintain equipment, which, which is a, a painfully large part of the work. Yeah. Like it's, I, <laughs> I love playing with coffee equipment. It is nice to have new toys. I hate selling equipment to customers because it is always, it is always a challenge. I don't want to talk. I am not so interested in talking about prices or giving people deals, but when they buy equipment, you have to look after it. There's a responsibility there and it's a hard responsibility because there are lots of other, other things when my time is more valuable with customers. You know, I, 
It's kind of interesting you say that because I, I, I looked at it from the, the retail side of it as well. Is We were selling the Rancilio Silvias, yeah. remember? We, so we were selling Rancilio Silvias on the website and we were more expensive than anybody else in the UK because we were selling them at the recommended retail price. And people would email all the time and say, oh, I'd rather buy it from you than buy it from these other guys, but they're cheaper. And it'd be like, yeah, there's a reason you'd rather buy it from me and buy it from them because they won't help you when it goes wrong. Yet we we have taken apart putting new elements in and all those things because something went wrong with it. Um, and it's the same when you sell an espresso machine to a cafe. They're all about what deal can you do for me? If you can do a deal for them, you're pretty much going to leave them on their own and run away from them afterwards because there's no margin. Yeah, yeah, to look can, after yeah them. unless you find find a way of like monetizing that service or that relationship, you know. And then you yeah. get the opposite where there are, there are lots of coffee companies that will give equipment for free, or they'll, you know, pretty much give equipment for free provided you buy coffee from them. Uh, and yeah. anyone has anybody told them that it's well, like the this price? is this is the thing. It's like it's so, like. <laughs> And you look at the pricing and you see that the, you know, the pricing is even cheaper than ours. And we're, we're by no means expensive. Like when we, when we sell coffee wholesale, we, we try to price reasonably and in line with what it costs us. And, um, you know, that all that means is that money is not being spent on the coffee. You know, it, yeah. like, there is a direct line in quality and I find it difficult to understand the motivation sometimes. I understand like the, the business motivation of, of it's a great way of acquiring customers and building scale and stuff like that. But there is, there is something about like the moral argument of, well, no, we'll, we'll do the right thing instead. You know, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll protect pricing for equipment and when something goes wrong, we'll be there to fix it, even if it's two years later. And sometimes that's really sad. Like, I've had to go into customers who bought equipment and then started buying coffee elsewhere and they no longer buy coffee from us. And the only time I will ever see them is when something's gone wrong with a machine that, you know, we really didn't make enough money on to, to warrant that treatment. Uh, yeah. But that's what you do because it's the, it's the right thing when you enter into that contract and take someone's money. Uh, yeah. It's a whole customer service thing. It's, you know, it's, that's, that's the important part is to make sure that like everybody, and, and I've talked about this before where like when I first started has been, I was kind of like, okay, I don't know as much about coffee as everybody else. I don't know as much about roasting as everybody else. I don't particularly come from a background of coffee professionals for years. One thing I can do better than anybody else is look after yeah. people. Is like give them good service and make sure that I kind of do the best that I possibly can. And if you can walk away from it kind of going, I did everything. And if they're still unhappy with you, they're still unhappy with you. But if you can do, say, I've done everything that I feel that if I was in that situation, I would want somebody yeah. to do, it's the right thing. I can't, I can't remember which company it is. I think it's a car hire company, but it may, it may have been an airline. But their slogan was, we try harder. You know, and no, like you don't match every customer's needs. We are not the right supplier for every customer. But we put, you know, we've, we've always had a philosophy, it has been, and like, or a culture like across the whole team that this really matters to us. And we're going to do the job. And we're going to do it as best as we can. And we're going to put the effort in. And sometimes that means, you know, both of us have been there at like four in the morning, moving a coffee machine or, or making sure that something goes into a box so that somebody gets it so they can do their event or do their whatever. And it matters. Like I, I am proud of the way we work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Me too. Um, okay. So moving on from that, uh, I want you to put that hat off for a little while. And I want you to put your SCAE hat on. So, first of all, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> Just why? Like, why would you get involved in the professional politics of a coffee organisation? So, so, what motivated you to get to, to get involved? So, I kind of... I unintentionally ended up on the board of SCAE. Um, I was invited by... That was one hell of a drunken <laughs> night. <laughs> you take you the shilling and you have to do your twenty years. Feel on his right butt cheek. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so I I was invited by Cosmo Lobato, who was the then president of SCAE, 
uh, who's a good friend. And he's also a very good man who can convince people to do oh. all the kind of things that they shouldn't or wouldn't want the, to. The man is weirdly full of charisma. Like, yeah. <laughs> it, is hard, it is hard to believe, but he, he is very much... Uh, Cosimo is a man that you listen to, and if he says, if he wants you to help him with something, you help him with something because, because you believe in him. And mm-hmm. he asked me yeah. to go to Frankfurt. He said I would be useful. I think, uh, again, I was like a substitute for you. It's like I, I, I brought a little <laughs> bit of the, the has-been value and brand and a little bit of... Uh, Not be the... Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm the nice <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, I, I have complete insight to my quackishness. Um, it's okay. I completely understand. I, I, think, I think he wanted somebody that, like, uh, he was looking for baristas that could could come together to set up the what would then become the Barista Guild. Um, there were mm-hmm. lots of reasons why he was supporting it, but it was it was a real considered effort to get like twenty people into a room to try and make something happen, and I was one of the twenty people. And after like six months uh, when 15 or 16 of those 20 people had left to do other things or didn't have the time for it. I was one of the four or five that was left kind of pulling Barista Camp together, the first Barista Camp in Europe, uh, and then trying to decide what Barista Guild would be once that event was over. Um, and somehow I I became the chair of the Barista Guild for a year. Um, a... Does that mean people came and sat on you? <laughs> it definitely felt like it. <laughs> uh, I was not elected, but I kind of campaigned within the small group. It was like, they have a vision and there's things they want to make happen. And I think this is a really valuable resource. And so somehow I became the chair of Barista Guild and people supported me. Uh, and we started looking at other things that we could do beyond running Barista Camp every year. Um, and it was very much about building some structure for an organization, so some very boring things like setting up bylaws and whatever. But along with that process, I became the representative to the board of Barista Guild. Uh, so I was co-opted and I sat on the board for uh, for around 15 months. And I was actually, my eyes were opened to the people that were sat on that board and what they were trying to do. And I think you were lucky of the timing of being involved in that board because, uh, I mean, at that time you had um, Cosimo, you had um, uh, from Marco. Uh, Paul and Drury. uh, Paul and Drury. Yeah, and then there was a there was an like uh, didn't Lena join the board Uh, at the time? I was 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 just after Lena had left, and I think I think had Lena joined around that time. She'd have like she's a really uh, Lena is one of the most inspiring people that I spent time with in coffee. You know, she's a real businesswoman uh, who has a real, like, huge behemoth of business and, and has lots of responsibility. Every time you see her at a trade show, she's smiling and she's making good things happen. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that it was at the time where there was a little bit of a clear out. Yeah, like well, this, wasn't it? Because let's be, let's be honest, it was a hangover. I, I was definitely school. joining a the end of a transition from a board that was, let's say, very backward facing and very tied up within its own politics that it developed, and a new board that were kind of that that over the 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 two or three years have been kind of building towards change and progression and development and really shaking things up in a positive way. And so, so I joined okay. this board, and I was I was convinced that these were going to be. Uh, let's use your word, a bunch of twats. I, I thought I was going to be joining a, a really corporate group and was going to be, have to be fighting them for money or resource or support. And I basically met some incredibly lovely people who were excited about doing good things and were completely supportive of everything they said. To, to the point that it, you know, after about you know, six months, I was like, everything I say, they clap. It's, I guess it's a joke. Am I being filmed? Uh, but they, they were they were incredibly supportive and, and helpful. So, and it opened my eyes to the fact that actually, for all its chums, it isn't the end of the year. Well, it is. <laughs> There's no doubt that it is. But for all its flaws and for all the challenges you get when you have bureaucracy or you try and pull companies together to make things happen, it is 
a way and probably the most successful way of making positive change for the industry. Like, even if you were doing incredibly wonderful, positive things as a business on your own, people won't trust you because, you know, the, there are competitive urges and your people are protective of their interests and they're not as supportive of other companies' initiatives, even when they know they're the right thing. And I'm as guilty of that as anyone else. Uh, sure. Like, I can see other companies doing great things with their customers, but I don't want to make as much noise about that because that impacts, they're my competition, that impacts my business. And through organizations like SCAE, when, when people are really focused on making things better, you do have the ability to make a change that is, that is wider than your one company and is wider than the producers you buy from or the customers you serve. Um, it isn't easy and it doesn't always work. And there are lots of you know, projects that I don't always agree with or are not what I see as the best use of resource. But as a general rule, it's the most effective way to make positive change, I think. That's a why. Mm. So um, that, 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 that's that kind of that, that's what the association should be because it's trying to encompass everybody's needs and it shouldn't just be one person's or one group's yeah. needs. Um, and I think as long as the thing being done is somebody's needs somewhere, then that's a, that that's got to be a good thing. Um, it, there's an elephant in the room that we should talk about: the aggressive takeover. The aggressive takeover. Um, I mean, it's actually called that at board level. Well, it excellent. always has been. It's just... uh, <laughs> just we we had this thing. Oh no, we're not going to talk about it like that. I um, see. I knew. I knew. Are you, are you talking about the, me, but... the results of the unification vote? The unification vote. I, I, I wonder um, so... whether I can find uh, a soundtrack for this. What What is the law if I play song belonging to like a band, private individual? With with this, I think we'll probably get. Will podcast get pulled if I play Spice Girls to become one? <laughs> it'll get pulled but not for copyright reasons <laughs> well, I'll say the karaoke version <laughs> because that's already <laughs> can we not play the, the Phil Collins uh, Phil Collins song Separate Lives <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think oh, I can do it I'm, I'm very worried that an ad is going to come out if I play um, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna so, do it. It's in the key no, of. I can't do it. it it's it's <laughs> completely unnecessary. Uh, and I know that you have the Spice Girls at your fingertips. This, this was on my things. Apple Music. <laughs> All right, I think that's um, enough. Yeah. So, I mean, what's what's been the reaction from SCIE to the SCIAs um, making us wait? Quote: We want to go out on a date with you, and SCIA went. Mm, I, so when I when I started getting involved in Barista Guild, uh, or the the nascent Barista Guild, what became Barista Guild? So I was looking through uh, through my phone at photos earlier uh, in the week, and it was like 2014 that we first had those conversations. Uh, mm-hmm. And at that point, there was discussion about you know there was big competition from SCAA over educational stuff and. You know, how will we react to that? Uh, was there an opportunity to work together? Um, and throughout my first term on the board, when I was co-opted, uh, that conversation became more developed to the point that the last board meeting that I spent time at, and this, this is not confidential, it's in the minutes that belong to any member, uh, we signed like a, an agreement based on the fact that should the membership of SCAE and the membership of SCAA both agree and vote positively to support it, we would move forward with a new aligned structure. And there was a plan in place, like a logistical plan that is painfully slow, where these boxes need to be ticked. But if everyone agrees and everyone's happy, this is what an, a, a unified organization might look like. Uh, and a part of the reason why I stood for election to go back in the board was because I was really excited by that vision and I wanted to be part of it. So. Mm-hmm. I've just got back uh, from a strategic meeting between both the SCAA and the SCAE where we, we were really drilling down into some of the detail of how that's going to work. And, you know, there's, there's a, a marketing and communications department from, from both groups working together on 
of what comes next and how they communicate it and, and exactly, you know, what a name is going to be and what a brand's going to look like. But you're going to see that real soon. Specialty Coffee Association ah. of the You're world. so close. Too many letters. <laughs> but yeah, like, and when you look at the detailed conversations about things like that, uh, the two things are, one, how complicated it is, like how many things you don't want to do to cause problems. So like geography. You know, we suddenly yeah. need to lose geography from it because you don't want to exclude any future potential organizations that want to become a member, but you also don't want to be the World Series or something as, you know, as not quite true as it is. Um, but, you know, both organizations for a long time have served members from across the world. Like there are members in, there's a huge amount of members in Korea, but there are members in, you know, SCAE has members in El Salvador. And SEAA has members in Iceland and China and wherever. So like recognizing that geography is not how the coffee community works. Like every coffee roaster is dependent on producers in a completely different part of the world. And every barista needs, you know, roasters from across the world and producers from across the world. And so does the customer. Uh, so it's going to be called the Specialty Coffee Association then. Okay, that's fine. Thanks for clearing that. I I, I definitely think you should you should get some things printed with that on it, just to, just in case you get ahead of the curve. Oh no! <laughs> but what if you're wrong? <laughs> I'm calling it Jeff. Um, the other thing that I heard: Are we aggressively going to go and take over the SCAJ now? The SCAJ. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think I think we should go and take over, right? Not ask the yeah. members, just turn up and say, "But well, you're part of us." I, now. Think, I, not I think if you study your history of Japan, I think that's exactly what America did in the late eighteen hundreds. Well, let's send our American brothers to go and do the deal. <laughs> I, I don't think it would be fair to say that the SCAJ is is separate from the rest of the world. Like <laughs> they they would not be singled out or targeted, but they're like. No, but Europe was by America. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I won't mm. let this go. We're like, I won't let so, this go ever. I, I um, wonder what aggressive takeover really means. Like I, for a long time, like you and I, you know, before I was involved with SCAE and, and whatever, both of us had strong connections with people who worked or were involved with SCAA and were amazed by how efficient and how driven they were to make things happen. Uh, there are there are so many exceptional people in that organization and whilst SCAA and SCAE both served similar needs for similar groups of people and if you can unite some of the powerful things in SCAE with some of the powerful things in SCAA without ideally whilst kind of re- redefining the needs of both organizations for for the needs of people today, particularly needs like uh, coffee pickers who have real labor issues or coffee farmers who have issues with rust, uh, with rust, with rust, with roasters who have issues with scalability. And, you know, the modern, the modern industry is different mostly because of technology and the internet. Uh, if we can build an organization that really responds to those, those newly defined needs, it will be better for everyone. And I don't care who is so, like, supposed to have taken over who or who's in charge as long as they're doing the good work and they're doing it as long as they are spending members' money more efficiently through it so we get mm-hmm. more bang for our buck, it's a worthwhile thing. It would be a problem if they just set yeah. up loads of offices in the States or in Paris or wherever and became like an organization with this hugely powerful global headquarters that looked down from an ivory tower and said, you're doing it wrong. The challenge is maintaining their local connection with the people on the ground who, who end up doing the work, you know, the volunteers, the members in the wider community. Which I think will be interesting because um, from, an, from an outsider looking in, I think there's, there's quite often I hear from other chapters in the SCAE of a disconnect between headquarters and, um, and and their chapter and chapter to chapter and, and all those things. And I think that's been, and I think that's something that's been acknowledged yeah. by yeah. the SCAE as well, that it's, it's been difficult to, by making it even bigger, does run the risk of it being an even bigger thing. And these are the kind, I got like a little 
like the, the, the lack of debate about what is bad about unification. So I had a load of board members come out and Twitter and Instagram and say, oh, you know, I'm unifying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was never anybody like, this could be a problem. Like, this could, and I'm sure they've been thought about, I'm sure they've been talked about in board meetings, but it's not very cool to talk about potential problems of something that well, might so, come so up like, from So like it. a really good example of that, and I, I don't want to talk about kind of Brexit and like the terrible decisions made by people in the UK but I'm really sorry the rest of the world I'm really sorry I've apologised everybody I meet from foreign countries I apologise I'm like I'm really sorry there's some stupid people in my country I think it is it is a common thing in in political campaigns that people are afraid to engage with the challenging aspects of what you want to happen like Mm. so people just talk about my side is best because this is the solution or my side is best because this is the solution and the reality is it's complicated and there is stuff we're talking about and there are, you know, real challenges that have to be addressed in, in how, and I I genuinely think that that local connection or, or local relevance is, is the biggest one Um, to make sure that you're doing the good work for somebody in Bulgaria or somebody in, I don't know, Iowa, whatever, that as the organization grows, it doesn't leave behind the, the people who need it, the people who pay for it, and the, pe- the people who, ha- who have a desperate need for community and for learning from outside and stuff like that. I've seen uh, the, let's say, the rough draft of what the organization intends to look like in five years' time based on current knowledge and where it thinks things are and where it's going to put resources. And the only thing I can really say is, you know, and those plans without a doubt will change as the environment it's being built in will change. But that question is being thought about deeply and is being addressed. And there are, there are plans and there are solid intentions on how we not just maintain relevance, but maintain conversation. Because I, I, yeah, I think there's also, there's going to be a whole heap of learning for our SCIA brothers about dealing with different countries um, and dealing with um, uh, different languages, yeah. um, you know, the, the, there's there's a whole heap to take on, and for, and for the ACIE uh, brothers, there's a lot to learn about dealing with, you know, a very powerful and strong member of the specialty coffee community, um, and and working together. I think there's just so many challenges. I think it's really exciting, um, but it's also kind of quite scary at the same time as well of, of how it will pan out and will we end up with something better at the end of it? I really hope so, uh, because we need a strong trade organisation. Like, I think that's super important if we want to develop as an industry. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it sounds like there's lots and lots of like, challenges. I, I think the important thing is all of those challenges already existed. And they were, yeah. and and not all of them were being responded to effectively. Uh, yeah. I think having the potential, not like having the lack of lessons learned, is a good thing. Like we suddenly double our experience. So one organization, one one set of staff that have come across different issues and are willing to share it. And you know, so the past. Uh, Wednesday through Friday, I spent time with with staff and volunteers and the boards of both organizations and everybody involved is working hard to make something good come from this for their members and for their stakeholders. Yeah. And, and I think that's exactly where it should be. Not that we don't have all the answers. We don't have everything worked out, but the intention is good. The effort is serious, uh, and I think we are where we should be. I, I, am, I am incredibly optimistic. I look forward to seeing... I look forward to looking back in a few years' time and seeing what was built from, from shaky, scary questions. You know? Yeah. I think that's a perfect place to leave it because it's nice to finish on something positive. Um... Thank you very much for joining me, Dale. Um, you're not, you do realize you're not being paid for this. I work hour. Sunday, so that is like we record this a day ahead, so I think I'm on double time. 
<laughs> you think away. <laughs> I'll wait till the end of the no, match. No, no, seriously, thank you for joining me. And, and and we may get you on as a special guest at some point in the future to talk more about the SCAE and the SCAA. I will, I will only come back if yeah. instead of you interviewing me, we do me interviewing you. Oh, that would no, be fun. No, <laughs> I challenge some of your deeply held prejudices. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is, you know everything about me as well, which kind of sucks. So you can really be, t- turn me up in, uh, and make me say bad things. Um, <laughs> no, thank you for joining me, Dale. Actually, I don't want to finish on that thought. I want to finish on what an aggressive takeover looks like in my mind. No. It's basically David Veal and Rick Reinhardt in their underpants in a big bowl of mud. <laughs> and they're basically just fighting to the death, whoever lives. They they take over and they're the didn't champion. you already didn't you work out that Amory would would win? <laughs> yeah yeah no we've worked that one out but we, yeah we, we're just going to send like you know, lambs they're, to the slaughter. They are our like, champions, Rick and David. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it'd just be fun you know and, and and there has to be a lot of mud involved. In Do you know what? I, so I spent a very short amount of time with Rick over the past few days and he's very good. I have Love a lot him, of time. Did you? <laughs> yeah, no, he, he he did the Porterfilter podcast thing about yeah. unification, and it was the most eloquent and common sense approach to the whole thing that I'd heard from yeah. anybody. Like it was just made so simple, but so smart at the same time. And he is—he's he's a very very clever guy. I have got a bit of a man crush on Rick Reinhardt. <laughs> That's where we should finish it. <laughs> Steve Layton has a man crush on Rick Reinhardt. Thank you for joining me, Dale. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And, see you at the um, office tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> no, you won't see, see you me in the office York. tomorrow. I'm in I'll see you in New York when you're back from your holiday. You, I will see you in New York. Oh, actually, yes, we should do a last push for tickets because we do have a few left. Thank you for doing that. Jen would have killed me. Um, so we have a few tickets left for New York, uh, still available on the website. There are not many. I think at last count, there's about... 1520 so um if you're in new york next weekend please do come along and say hi and there's lots of great speakers um i've seen a little bit of the content that people are going to be talking about and it looks very exciting so do come along have you i mean you're coming as well i'm coming i am working bar so if people want to see what the seven eight years of almost winning a barista competition mean for brewed coffee quality Yeah. Oh dear. Um, yeah, it's going to be loads of fun. Uh, it's next Sunday. Um, tickets are available on tampatantrum.com uh, or follow us on Twitter or the Instagram. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting lots of our American bread bins so we can uh, we can talk about their aggressive takeover and who would win out of Rick Reinhardt and David Veal. I'm determined to make that the last thought in people's minds Ciao. Um, yeah yes thank you for listening and over and out thanks for listening to this podcast it's proudly brought to you by nuova simonelli